Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about uh, classical stuff, <laughs> uh, old books, um, the world gone before, ages past. Wow. Um, we are three guys. My name what is, is what Graham is going Dawson. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. It hasn't my been that long. Uh, my name's Graham Dawson. I'm joined with... It feels like you were designing it to be listened to double speed. Well, okay, <laughs> fine. The thing is, I was trying to say, we're three guys that work at a classical school, but, but that's not a thing anymore. anymore. That's fine. Uh, uh, and so I kind of double... I panicked. Boys, I panicked. Just Can you say we're two guys who work at a classical yeah. school? Plus so my name's Graham Dawson. Yeah. My name's Graham Dawson, and I'm joined with Thomas Magby Hi. and AJ Hannenberg. Yep. And... Oh. Um, <laughs> When I was a kid, oh my gosh! When I was young, I liked Star Wars, like the original trilogy. Okay, and then you would hear rumors that there was new movies coming out, uh-huh. and you're like, "Surely not! That's never going to happen." New Star Wars movies? I don't know. And you hope, and you pray, and you think about it, and you would, you know, sometimes you would get like little teasers of maybe like a movie poster. Or, or something like that. It would just sort of fuel your hope that the thing that you so desperately wanted was eventually going to come. We're here, boys. It's the Genghis Khan episode. <laughs> it's actually happening. It's actually happening. Yeah. You know, you know, for some people, this is the first episode they've listened to. So they That's have right. no idea what you're so referencing. So they have, you know, they've got some 270 hours to catch up on. To catch up on. Yeah. And um, anyway, Hannenberg, rumor has it that we're, we, we're here. That it's upon, We're upon us. So I, I've been trying to do an episode on Genghis Khan's secret history of, I think it's called secret history of Genghis Khan, or secret history of the Mongolian Empire, something like that. Hold on. I, I know this. I should know this. It's the name of the book. <laughs> uh, the secret history of the Mongols. So I've been trying to do this thing. It's the the primary source for our information about Genghis Khan and his exploits. And so who, who wrote it? Uh the Mongols oh, in the year point. 1200. Okay, rock and roll. We actually don't know the who the specific author is. There's a lot. There's people trying to figure it out, but we do know that it was edited over time. You know, to make clearer the the name, like people who would be elevated in the future or like grandkids would be given their titles and that sort of thing. We didn't have the same. Don't ne- you know? Never touch the script of someone as if it's sacred authorship. That kind of thing it was a That's history right. book. So. It was edited over time and changed, and we we know this. So this so is like eleventh edition. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've been trying to do this for a long time, but it's a pretty big undertaking, and certainly not something that can be done in a single episode. And I have, you know, sometimes as with this week, I have something almost every night of the week, plus schoolwork, plus you know other stressors, and so sometimes I can't dive into a several, you know, a, a massive work that fills an entire white binder sitting over there on my desk. Dude, Plus you all the scholarship don't, you don't around owe it. any explanations to anybody. Yeah, In any case, I'm trying. I'm finally there. And today we get to do the introduction. So I read the introduction and uh, of the translation that I am using, which is by, hold on, let's go to the, translated by Christopher P. Atwood. Um, the introduction was great. It was better than the other version I have. And it kind of gives a whole lot of background that I didn't know about the world of the Mongolian and Mongolian empire as Genghis Khan kind of became the person he would be. Uh, he grew up as a kid named Temujin and then would eventually become Genghis Khan. So today I'm going to go through a little bit of the background, preparing you for the actual secret history of the Mongols. Uh, I'm hoping it'll take a full hour. I got six pages of notes here. It might take a full hour. I'll try to throw, throw in a little bit of quiz show here and there to keep, keep you guys interested. Let's go. And, uh, and that's what we're doing today is, cool. is the history of 
the Mongols, the secret history of the Mongols, just, just kind of prepping you guys for the rest of this series. And if this is the first time you are hearing classical stuff, this is something I've been promising for a really long time and have consistently said, like, it's the next thing I'll do. This time it actually is. It's happening. I'm actually doing it. And uh, there you go. And if this is the first time you're listening to the podcast, we're sorry. Yeah. No, not for this one. Oh, this not for good, this one. This is going to be a good one. But I mean, just generally. For Just generally sorry for who we are? Yes. For no, the, all, all the content we put into the world? Yeah. It's pretty good. I don't know. I don't know like, they're probably going to be like, oh, that was a great episode when they listened to AJ's one. They're uh-huh. going to go back. Ah, uh, fair. Yeah. Okay. I actually went back and listened to uh, our Spheres episode uh-huh. because we've been getting YouTube comments on it because uh-huh. high school kids have to listen to it somewhere. Did you are you did you post on one of our videos first? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing with your spare time? I have lots of questions for you, Graham. Uh, I was first. Okay, that was fair. the first comment. Thanks. Um, anyway, and I went and re-listened to it, and it's just one of the me and AJ ones. Mm-hmm. When we're cheek to cheek. Where we're cheek, oh literally cheek to cheek on a chair, and like the rapport is not there no. as much. And well, we were uh, just trying it out, getting our sea legs. And um, it's like 20 minutes long. Um, yeah. We should was, redo that one because there's a lot probably, of Probably. Cool there's a lot stuff. of cool sphere stuff. Yeah. But some poor schlops out there have to listen to it for homework. <laughs> it's very funny. Really? That episode? Yeah. yeah that specific Does it keep one. getting returned to? So I got a comment saying like, this, this episode is like a mixture of like podcast bros and uh, like astrology girls in the best way possible. Something <laughs> yes. like that. Yes. I was like, okay. That's pretty I good. I can take that. Have we got any reviews uh, Reviews lately? Yeah, we, yeah, we, got, we actually got a... I was going to have a, nice for the in-between one. We had a wonderful re- most recent review on, on iTunes about our credential, about our, how our lack of credentials is not a hindrance to the oh. enjoyment of the Do podcast. Do you want to read it? Oh, so this is actually like a positive interview. Yeah, yeah, read it. I was okay. wondering if we had any like one stars. No, read it. Love Jesus. this podcast. Five stars. This is... We're just going to... Should we do this now or should we... Yeah, we're too, yeah, I'll toot my own horn right now. Yeah, this is great. Um, this is such Welcome a... Welcome to the podcast. Hi, guys. Listeners. We're great. We're a five-star podcast. <laughs> this is such an entertaining way to get an overview of a wide variety of topics related to literature, philosophy, the classical understanding of man and his place in the universe, and doors. <laughs> a couple of the comments that I saw referenced their scholarly credentials or lack thereof and seemed to disparage them because of it. These guys are two high school teachers and a former administrator turned math guy. They never claim to be more, yet they are. Now, if you find yourself writing a doctoral dissertation on how the intersection of absurdism and neoclassical economic theory impacts stay-at-home parents in suburbia, you may be disappointed by this podcast and the life choices that brought you to this point. (laughs) That being said, this podcast is like sitting with some very smart, witty, and sometimes combative friends, not naming names, Graham, who are talking (laughs) about a subject that they either know quite well or a subject they are just learning about. Their style may be off-putting to some, but to each his or her own. As for me, and this completely not generated by ChatGPT review, I am a fan. Oh, that's <laughs> awfully nice. sweet. It's a great review. I'm a, am I combative? Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. We can, talk, oh we, can, we can talk about this. In well, the great thing is this is something I'm just learning about. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. here we go. I'm <laughs> not claiming to be an expert in Genghis Khan. I've read the introduction, but the introduction is pretty informative. Good. Let's go. Uh, I've got six pages of notes that I hastily wrote this morning. Uh, so there are some misspellings. So if it takes me a second to read my notes, it's because I have written them in, written them in haste and and may have misspelled some things. Like, for example, in the first line, I wrote Chornicle instead of Chronicle. Hey, this is the day after your birthday there, big guy. Yeah. You're, you're about to have a happy birthday, buddy. And I really happy have birthday. had something like every day of the week. Yeah. So, okay. So where it comes from. Uh, Kublai Khan, who's the kid of good old Genghis he re-edited some Mongolian sources into a thing called the Authentic Chronicle of Genghis Khan. It was, a, it was bilingual in Mongolian with interlinear Chinese translation, so both in Mongolian and Chinese. 
in this version, all the family conflicts and squabbles were purged to make everything look a bit better than it would have otherwise. Uh, the Mongolian version was lost, but the Chinese text was combined with a similar, in quotes, authentic chronicle by another one of Genghis's son, Genghis's sons, Okodai, to form the campaigns of Genghis Khan in Chinese. Meanwhile, another Mongolian copy of, in quotes, the authentic chronicle of Genghis Khan, put together also by Kublai, was taken to Mongol rulers in the Middle East and translated into Persian. So much of the secret history's text was preserved verbatim in that thing, the campaigns of Genghis Khan and the Persian compendium of chronicles. So basically lots of versions all put together. Um, The secret history is not yet something that we have, right? Mm. These are versions that were kind of from the Chinese interlinear translation and were from sources edited by Kublai. We don't yet have the full secret history. Um, Finally, in the 1800s, the secret history emerged in the light of scholarship. So pause. Khan is a title, right? Khan is a title. Okay, cool. Um, The basis was a version of the text which had been transcribed syllable by syllable into Chinese characters chosen solely for their sound. Woof. So they were, I think, trying to change, like translate the Mongolian. They didn't really have the full Chinese translation, so they just did it by the sound. Um, This version preserved the Mongolian text with a complete Chinese translation of it. So that's pretty good. We found that thing. This was prepared in 1380 as a tool to help the Ming Dynasty interpreters communicate with the Mongols that they had just kicked out of China. So again, it's translated, which is really nice. This version was used to reconstruct the original Mongolian. Um, I imagine incredibly painstakingly, right? Mm. If it was from Chinese characters chosen solely for their sound. Right. In the 20th century, another version surfaced in Mongolia itself. It's less complete, but still useful. Uh, scholars found a copy from 1651 called the Golden Chronicle, which had verbatim about two-thirds of the actual secret history of the Mm. Mongols. Mm. So all these sources together have helped us reconstruct the original secret history of the Mongols with all of those family squabbles intact. So few different sources confirmed by earlier sources from Kublai and um, from Okode to kind of put together this whole book. So that's kind of where all of this is coming from. Um, It sounds complicated and incredibly painstaking to reverse engineer the Mongolian from the Chinese. That sounds rough. Yeah. Yeah. But there we go. And then it was confirmed, you know, confirmed again with this less complete version that surfaced in Mongolia itself. Okay. So now we get to talk about the world in which this story takes place. That's probably going to do the rest of the podcast for us. I'll be talking about like what life was like for the Mongols. All of this was new to me. I know very little about the Mongols and where they lived and how they are and anything. Like, I'm just jumping into Genghis Khan and I'm no historian, right? I'm an English teacher. Graham is Dude, the historian stop of the hedging, podcast. Man. Stop yeah, hedging. What's going on? Okay. All right. Fine. I'm just, just. You're an expert. Well, that's not. Wait, hold on. I'm just trying to, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, if, you, if I don't know the answer to a question, I'm kind just of. Throw it around, why. big guy. Just throw it around. Fake it till you make it. I mean, it's the, uh, okay. It's American way. Yeah. So they, they lived in yurts. Okay. And, <laughs> Not the yurt that you are thinking of that you can sort of break down and move to a new place and rebuild. These yurts were not breakdownable, but they were mobile. And what they typically did was they just lifted them up and plunked them on a wagon and then took them to the next place and took them off and put them down. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. They were big circular dwellings covered in felt, not leather or anything else. Hmm. Big felt coverings. Um, And the inside, it was like pretty ornate, usually covered in sort of gold cloth, depending on how wealthy you were. If you were con, it was nice inside. Um, the way that they would sort of organize themselves within the yurt also signified status. So big old yurts. Big, big yurt. old yurts. Yeah. I mean, especially for the cons. Sure. I, if you're a smaller person, 
it matters less. Wait, so they would be mobile? They would travel around? These are not nomadic mobile. cons? They so are nomadic cons. Oh. Uh, I think later in the empire, they would build brick and mortar walled cities just as, as bases. But they were, I, from what I know, they were always mobile, mm -hmm. right? They were always moving with the seasons and going to find game. And yeah, the cons were mobile. They moved. And I will describe more of what the big, like big stuff looked like during the empire and how huge these wagon trains got. But for a Khan, his yurt was organized in hierarchy. So the, the Khan was on a couch furthest from the entrance door. And so he would have been sitting facing south because all of the yurts were set up facing south. Um, behind him were his kids and sometimes his wives, uh, I, I will, I usually like maybe one wife, I think. On the, as you are sitting as the con, the men are to your right and the women are on the left. If I'm a man walking into a yurt, especially a con's yurt, I'm not going to hang up my quiver on the women's side. I'm gonna hang it up on the men's side and then go hang out with the men. And even then, the, your hierarchy was signified by how closely you stood to the couch or how near you were to the door. Mm. If you were close to the door, you were not important. Mm. If you were close to the con, you were very important. Yeah. And ladies and, and dudes, there are some records of missionaries coming and they were seated on the women's side, which I'm not sure if that was an insult, but they were not considered super important. Mm. I mean, I set up my dinner party, like my, when people come way. to my house, yeah, for sure. it's like if you're closest to the couch, yeah, or if you're closest to the door, this is how I do it. Put your quivers in the mudroom. <laughs> yep, quivers in the mudroom. Okay, they had, they also had possession wagons. So they had what? wagons for the big yurts and they would just plunk the work yurt on it. And then to keep their possessions out of the rain, they had kind of these big covered wagons that were black. So the, the, the yurts were typically white. They were, the, the possession wagons were black and they were smeared with ewe's milk or, um, or fat to kind of keep them weatherproof. Mm. And then there's big, huge locking locker on top to carry all the possessions. So you would see these giant wagon train of yurts and big black wagons kind of moving across the ground that looked like ants. It's kind of fun. Um, early on in the empire, uh, your wagon train was probably looking at five to 15 yurts, usually having to do with your family. Uh, but after the empire, we are talking massive groups. So each con would have up to a score of wives and each lady would have one primary yurt for herself and smaller yurts for her entourage and one or 200 wagons for possessions. Yeah, that makes sense. So one historian numbered the minor yurts behind a lady at 100. Oh, wow. Each one having four female servants, four maids. So 400 girls in her entourage, and then 300 locker wagons, each attended by a male slave. Um, so each lady would place her yurt, uh, each chief lady would place her yurt in the front rank, uh, facing south in order of seniority from west to east, um, and the entourage stretching out in line behind her and wagons in rows between yurts. So when they, when you stop, um, there's even a hierarchy for how you build out the yurt city. So most important yurt facing south. If you are looking south, the most important yurt is on your right. So if you're facing the wagon, facing like this huge city of, of yurts, the most important person is your front left. And then as you move down the row, people get less and less important. And then the entourage of the people in those front yurts would be directly behind them in a line and all their possessions would go between the yurts. Mm. So that's, you just know by where you are in the camp, how important everybody is. Why South? Why have face everything South? I don't know. Okay. No clue. I would imagine it probably had to do with sunlight in the yeah, door and then maybe just importance. From what I know of their religion, there wasn't anything crazy from the South, but mm -hmm. my knowledge of the religion. It's probably is, just like South facing window. You know, it's nice in the winter. Yeah, and, you know. it's great. Sure. 
Um, the tents were light and pretty easy to carry. In the center of these big, you know, wagon train uh, cities was what was called the Horde. Uh, the word for it is their Ordo. And this is the ruler's tents in the center. Um, I think typically for hunting. So this is a big hunting tent. It is also where they would entertain dignitaries or hold court. Some of them had golden pillars. Some of them were big pavilions. And we're talking could seat hundreds of people. Uh, the ladies are amassed and the resident populace. Um, they're the one that I think Genghis stole from the previous ruler had golden liquor services, bowls, vessels, and staffs and stuff. Um, they weren't for residents. People didn't live here. This was just for assembly. And all of the big formal audiences were held here. And so beyond this, most of the emperors wouldn't spend their time in the horde. They would spend their time in, you know, the yurts of a, a lady friend. Oh, there you go. Yeah. In wartime, every, the, the whole organization changed. They would essentially change the big square shape into a circle shape, and they would literally circle the wagons, oh, okay. making them defensible on all sides. This sounds exhausting. I mean, like, yeah. I built a house, and I was tired when I was done. I feel like if you're having to move your house and this wagon train all the time. That's just a lot of effort. It's a lot of effort, but it also keeps you out of the snow. That's good. It's right. I think in that. the summers they would, or in the winters they would head to the Sahara and in the summers they would head north to get out of the Sahara. So it's Sahara. just, I thought it was the Sahara, wasn't it? No, no. The Sahara's in, uh, I think in, it's in Africa. I'm th- maybe I'm thinking You're of thinking different. of the, um, oh, uh, what's that great, the great desert in China. Um, yeah, whatever that one is. Start with a G? Gobi? Gobi. Yeah, the Gobi. The Gobi Desert, uh, yeah. Anyway, they would travel, I think, with the seasons gotcha. and with the game because the game was also migrating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll get to that in a little bit. They're a horse people, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, feasting was an essential Mongolian political activity and had very complex rules, but it often degenerated into quarrels, brawls, and murder. Yeah. Um, their most distinctive and valued food was, and I kind of want to taste this. It sounds really good. Fermented mare's milk. Uh, known as kumis during the time of the secret history. It was also known as isuk. Uh, Mares. You know what a mare is, right? Female horse. Yeah, yeah. Right? So you're going to take, you're going to. Horse milk. First of all, you're taking horse milk. So gross. And And you're going to ferment ferment it. it. You're making, you're making boozy horse milk. Yep. And you, and uh, like, do you flavor it? Did you put some like juniper in there? Uh, They, I don't know. I don't know if they flavored it, but it was supposed to be really good. And they. So the mares were milked and the milk was whoa, placed whoa, whoa, in skin sacks whoa. and they churned it with broad plungers until it fermented and made a slightly alcoholic drink. Okay, well, back up. Let's just let's just take another little step back. Yeah. Have you ever had a fermented lactose-based thing? Uh, yeah. I don't think I what have. What about Bailey's? But I mean, no, I feel Bailey's is just like- And there's like beer with Sugar lactose. and cream and then you put booze in it. But like this is, you're fermenting the actual sugars in the milk. That Bailey's isn't that. Yeah. I don't think. I don't think I've ever had... Bailey's is the first liqueur made with cream and Irish whiskey produced from a bacterial fermentation of whey or milk plasma coming from selected Irish cows. Oh, all right. Back this bus up. Okay, so... Fermented mare's milk all the way, boy. I think you might be be onto something. uh, It sounds uh, really good. And there's a couple of historians who went there and swear by it. It's supposed to be really delicious. So as someone who has been accused of (laughs) not being charitable to things I haven't tried... Yeah, don't knock it. Hey, if there's... There's got to be some, like... Like boutique bougie hipster hairs, uh, hair, mare's milk, that mare's milk, like uh, uh, microbrewery out there. And if you yeah. listen to this podcast, we would love send to send it to the guys at classical stuff. Uh, duck, uh, I have another. What, what are we called? The guys at classical stuff.net. Yeah, that's it. You got there. Yeah. Um, Donaldson, I got another thing you haven't tried. Yeah. Uh, human hair leg warmers. Oh, you're crying a lot. That's just, <laughs> oh, my word. That's from the, oh. that's from the AMA. That, yeah, still oh. an insane story. I yeah. have a, I have a pair of leg warmers that someone made me when I was in college insane. from 
collected hair that they collected his eyes unholy themselves. So gross. I still maintain humans care for their hair better than almost any other animal. My word. Except for maybe cats. They do a pretty good job. Truth. Yeah. Okay. So these sacks full of isuk were hung near the door cool. and attended by an attendant who faced the master. Later, they added other liquors that they had, uh, grape wine, weiss rind, uh, mead. Um, their diet would change depending on the season. It, during the summer, they would have an incredibly dairy-heavy diet. It was a lot of dairy, a lot of fermented things, lots of cheese, lots of, apparently they were really good at it. And then during the winter, it was a, it was a meat-heavy diet. Um, mutton was sign me up. (laughs) Mutton was the most common meat. Uh, horses were slaughtered only on special occasions and beef was incredibly rare. Mm. The mutton was usually boiled. Uh, they hunted for much of their food in the winter. That's kind of how they got stuff. The hunts were as important as warfare and included initial scouting. So like you, if you serve the con, you are, you are important on the hunt. Okay. How would you in wintertime as a con and you had a lot of people to feed, Mm -hmm. How would you hunt? What is your strategy? I would find a herd of animals. I would then have my horses chase that herd off of a cliff, and they would all die at the bottom. Okay. And then I would just go and get them. Okay. So what strategy? That's how they do it in, in, that's how they did it in Canada. That's the buffalo hunt. Things called buffalo jumps, where they would chase the herd of buffalo off a cliff, Mm -hmm. and then they would... And then there'd be men waiting at the bottom of the cliff. And when all the buffaloes fell down and died, they were, or if they or were hurt or broke their legs or whatever, then they come in and finish them off. And that's the best way to get like all the buffalo because they're all going to ch- uh, follow each other off the cliff. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know about what people actually do, but you said there are scouting teams. So I guess wherever I am, I need scouting teams basically in every direction. And that kind of determines which way I'm going to send my people to go on for their hunt. Okay. So if I'm moving all the time anyway, it's just move set up camp, send out scouts, and then see what we find. Okay, so I'm going to read you from Atwood's introduction. Okay. The hunters were arranged in a vast circle, and their beating the game lasted one to three months. They formed a hunting ring and drive the game slowly and gradually before them, taking care lest any escape from the ring. Finally, when the ring has been contracted to a diameter of two or three parasangs, which is six to ten miles, they bind ropes together and cast felts over them while the troops come to a halt all around the ring, standing shoulder to shoulder. The ring is now filled with cries and commotion of every manner of game. When the ring has been so much contracted that the wild beasts are unable to stir, first the Khan rides in together with some of his retinue, then the actual killing would commence, proceeding down the ranks from the Khan to the common soldiers. The colossal amounts of game meat so gathered and frozen in the cold of the Mongolian winter were distributed as spoils of the this war on the kingdom of beasts. It's incredible. Wait, so just a big old circle. circle. Yeah. But just like a miles. Slaughter ring, yeah. Miles and miles and miles. But how so. do you go to sleep? Like how do you maintain the perimeter of that circle for however long it takes? I don't I don't think this was a uh, I mean, it sounded like their beating of the game. Yes, it lasted a few months. I don't know, man. Rotation? Maybe it was just that they did this ring every couple of weeks yep. in different spots. And it wasn't one ring for three months. No, but I guess it's just oh maybe. Oh, I see what you're saying. I get, I mean, right, so it's, it's, it's like one day where they drive all the game into the middle and then they do the slaughtering. Yeah. Because the animals would be running away from... So if there are people on different parts of the circle, they're running away from them at yeah. all points. So they're all moving into the which center. Which keeps them in the center. Yeah. Right. I think that would work. Yeah. But apparently it did, right? Apparently it did. Yep. I mean, they fed a lot of people. Yeah. Cool. Okay. They also gathered crab apples, cherries, wild root, onion, etc. They did fishing, although fishing kind of fell out of style later. They hunted marmots and gerboas. Um, by the 1800s, Mongols wouldn't eat fish, but they still ate... gerbil, AJ. Huh? <laughs> Gerboa? Oh. 
Close. Yeah, good. I mean, the gerbil is barely a meal. Yeah. <laughs> it's barely a, a, barely a, a yeah. mouthful. Marmot meat is still considered a delicacy among the Mong- Mongols. I had no idea. Hmm. Now I want to taste marmot. Would you, I was going to ask, would you be interested in some marmot is meat? Is there a Mar- Mongolian restaurant in Austin? I'm sure. Mm. Yeah. Is it really? Does a Mongolian stir-fry restaurant count? I don't know. That's not Do really. Do they have a mare's milk? Fermented <laughs> mare's milk? I'll, I'll, I'll give them a call and let you know. What's marmot? Marmot? Yeah. It's kind of a... Isn't that what you put it like the Australians put in their toast? It's a That's rodent. marmite. Oh. It's a rodent. Marmot's a rodent. Mm. You know like a rock chuck? You ever heard of a rock chuck? No. Nope. A large ground squirrel. Mm. There you go. It's one of those... Our listeners can't Aww, see. It's adorable. You think yeah, so? That's cute. the Alan. Alan. Yeah. Alan. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. From the BBC Talking Animal yeah, yeah. Shorts. Those Alan. are pretty good. I miss. Oh, we had a guy, we had a teacher at our school named Alan who was teaching here when that became a like meme on the internet. And for a long time, all the students were like, Alan, Alan, he no longer teaches here. <laughs> Don't think it's related. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's talk the tale a little let's bit. Let's do it. So like scripture, it begins with some genealogies and early couples from which Genghis Khan will eventually come. And it's kind of intense, but it does give the impression that there were no existing states, right? That there was just kind of these roving tribes and there was no empires already established. That's not really true. Uh, Empires had risen and fallen in Mongolia for thousands of years before Genghis Khan. Um, Many of the things that were attributed to him, even in the secret history, like the decimal organization of the army into tens, hundreds, and thousands, the horde system, the imperial bodyguard with its imperial consort and lineages— All of these existed in earlier dynasties. He was Mm -hmm. not inventing this stuff. It it was sort of already there. Um, To quote, whatever we might make of the historicity of Genghis Khan's distant ancestors, such as Alan the Fair and Bodenkar the Simple, it's crucial to realize that the impression that they lived in a world with no states is an illusion created by the narrative structure of the work. Didn't really, wasn't really a thing. Um, Other, like, manuscripts exist, but... uh, like from previous things, but the tradition of reading reading them has been lost. Like some of the some of the old monuments to to these older empires, we don't really know much about them because no one knows how to figure stuff out about them. Um, but there were a couple of empires that we do know a lot about: the Karyat and Naiman kingdoms. Um, they were sort of the miniature prototypes for the kind of state that Genghis Khan would eventually build. Mm. So the Karyat kingdom. You guys still with me? Mm-hmm. Yes. So living in yurts, eating dairy, eating meat. Drinking mare's milk. Death circles. Death circles, traveling around. Carry it kingdom. So this is this is kind of the world in which the young Temujin, who would become Genghis Khan, grew, grew up and kind of the power struggles that were going on around him. Wait, pause. So are we talking kind of like kin-based, relation, kin-based relation, relationships between the tribes? So like was that sort of the political structure that held them together was the marriage ties between families and... Is it like an honor-based thing where it's like we all have these rules that we all follow? Is it is it sort of like that kind of structure? So a lot of it was marriage and family-based, yeah. a ton of it. And if you wanted to make someone illegitimate, yeah. you would claim that they were born not by their actual mother, <laughs> but by like a second or third important wife. Dang, well, homie. And, and then like change their genealogy and gotcha. kind of show proof that they weren't as legitimate as they claimed. But we're not talking like written laws and charters and where, where it is it is like uh, that sort of tribal ties. Kind of tribal ties. I think the Karyat kingdom was a little bit more organized okay. than just tribal ties. Like I wouldn't call them a tribe. Okay. They were pretty big. Okay. Um, I mean, if, if they're traveling around with ladies with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of camels, like it's not like, yes, tribe matters. And as far as I know, Khan is an elected title. Oh. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, I don't think that remained in the dynasty. Well, again, I, I haven't yet, this, yet gotcha. read the secret history, so I know less about his dynasty than I do about right now. What we're talking about is like what was going on around him as he came up. Gotcha. So the Khanat were ruled by a single fractious di- dynasty for several generations. This is the Karyat. Um, the Khan's horde and core army followed separate parallel tracks of nomadization from the southern Gobi or semi-desert in the winter to the northern Kangai or wooded forest in the summer. So they're traveling back and forth, but the, the army is kind of traveling alongside everybody else, not sort of within them. Um, he had a golden tent, uh, and the Khan was av- advised by four chief commanders. The military corps was organized uh, around a vanguard units numbering 10,000 men and their families. Um, when the princesses of ruling families were married, they were accompanied by a human dowry of up to 200 subjects mm. so that it became kind of an embassy of power into the new husband's mm. realm, okay. which is actually something Genghis would later do and kind of a really good idea, mm. right? If, if I'm French and, you know, marry my daughter to a British king, if I send 300 French people over there to live with them, that makes it a lot harder to initiate war in the future sure. if yep. we've got families and kids and people that were are like they're trying to recruit him into the British army and they're like, I'm actually French though. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's really smart. It's like kind of like a colonization, you know, or like a, it's a bigger intermixing of cultures that makes the, any sort of yeah, problems in the future much harder because not everybody wants to go to, wants to fight. Right. I've been moved over here. My family's here. My roots are here now. Right. And yeah, interesting. So of course, all of this was adopted by Genghis. Uh, he seized the Karyat throne in 1203, driving out the last Karyat ruler, Ong Khan, in autumn of that year. Um, in contrast to these dynasties, the eastern plateau, where Genghis grew up as Temujin, was divided between scores of petty warlords. So there was these big, huge dynasties, and there was also petty warlords kind of happening. I think in his immediate area, it was mostly these small petty warlords. Um, so... In broad terms, these are the, the kind of warlords we are talking about. You have the Merkit, which is three allied houses, and they occupied the fertile valley of the lower Selenge River, where it flowed through the northern Mongolia. Um, and again, I'm going to butcher every single one of these Bring names. It, do it. Yeah. So if you do know it. all the Mongolian names, like I'm not, I'm not even close. Scream at your car dashboard. Mm-hmm. Do it. You have the Tatar, which in my notes I have misspelled as Tater, which is funny. <laughs> uh, the Tatar. This was the general term for the Mongolic-speaking pastoralists of the plateau. After the rise of Genghis and the adoption of the term Mongol, this term was limited to those closest to the frontier with, with the Jurchen Jin dynasty, who I will describe in a minute. Um, these Tatars were some of Genghis's most implacable enemies, and they lived in the southeastern Mongolia and, and in Inner Mongolia. So we've got, you, you have the, the Karyat kingdom, and then you have some of these warlords, the Merkit, the Tatars, and then you have the Mongols who it usually meant all those east of the Karyat kingdom that weren't Merkit or Tatar. So everybody kind of left over. Yeah. Um, these are typically in the Onan and Kurlin valleys and the Hulin Buir areas. Genealogies, again, not always legit. Uh, the title of Khan was elective. Oh, so this is where we talk about what was going on in these specific tribes. So Khan was elective. You didn't necessarily earn it. Genealogies, not necessarily legit. The <laughs> Genghis's Khans were written after his rise. So, you know, they're kind of suspect anyway. Um, and Khan may have originally been essentially an envoy to the Karyat or the Jurchen Jin in northern China. Eventually, Genghis would shake the handlers and steal the throne of the Karyat. So we find out 
later that Genghis was not just some meteoric rise. He he had to pay tribute to the Karyat for a really long time and was kind of an underling for their dynasty yep. before he eventually sort of took over. Um, all right. The world beyond Mongolia. You guys still with me? Still yep. with you. Any questions? I was just thinking that's how it goes, right? Like the story in, 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 in our minds is like, this guy bursts on the scene and takes over. But the reality is, you know, he's kissing rings and working in the background for like 15, 20 years. You know, getting a little bit of power, yeah. you know, yeah, bowing to who he has to bow to. Mm-hmm. It's not just this, I got everything easy. Because mm-hmm. yeah. of some sort of... And grew up yeah. in total chaos and then sure, sure. brought this great kingdom. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't. There were great kingdoms before him that he sort of took over and took over some resources and that sort of thing. All right. The world beyond Mongolia. The kingdoms around the Mongols were so remade by the Mongolian Empire that the nations are strange to us. Like, China, Russia, and Iran were not there before Mongolia. They were created out of the breakup of the Mongolian Empire. That's how big this thing was. So it's not All like... All of Russia? I don't know. It may, it's got to be the, like... Chunks of the, Russia. The uh, southeastern part. Wasn't this the whole thing? Because the Mongol Empire is the largest contiguous empire in history, right? Like, it ends up being giant. How I don't know. far north did it get? I don't know. In it, Russia. Precisely, though. but... Anyway. It, larger than we think, right? Yeah. Isn't, that, that's the point of this. Okay. So they they came out of the breakup of the empire. It wasn't like a return to okay. already established lines. So, okay, well, what years are we talking then? We're talking, like... What do you mean, when it broke up? No, just see, like, uh, when, when was Genghis, what's Genghis Khan's life? 1206 to 1294 is okay. the expansion. Yeah, Take okay. a look at this picture right here, Graham. Map. Oh, look at that PowerPoint. Look at that. that automated, that animated little map That's is, great. is growing. What do you look at that. that. Now, none, of that our listen, none of our listeners can see this. Doesn't matter. So, um, Graham, how would you describe the northward expansion of said empire? So it doesn't get as far north as... Uh, um, tippy top of Russia. Tippy top of Russia. And it doesn't get as far... Anyway, at some point it's in Moscow, so it's it's getting to yeah the western part and it's it's butting up towards uh, uh, Europe there, and it doesn't cross the Himalayas to get into India, but comes right up to it. So it's a big empire. It's big. What's that spinning in the background there, Megby? Spinning in the background. Oh, you got like a program running. I do have a program yeah. running. Okay. Keep going there, big guy. Yeah. Okay, so here's what things did look like. You had the Jurchen Jin. Spelled J-U-R-C-H-E-N-J-I-N, or at least English version. These guys were the leading power of the world in from 1115 to 1234, which is kind of fun because it's one, two, three, four. That <laughs> <laughs> seems like a bummer of a way easy. to go, right? That's yeah. a bummer of a way to go. Uh, and they led in North China. The Jin meant gold. So this is the Golden Dynasty and was founded by the Jurchen people from the forest lands of Manchuria. Um, it existed centered traditionally in Chinese territory. They rose to power by overthrowing the Lao dynasty, also not ethnically Chinese. Um, after th- overthrowing their Khitan overlords, the Jurchen rulers quarreled with the Song dynasty in the central and southern China. So they, they have enemies, right? Um, the war with the Songs would seize all of northern China too. Uh, the Lao ruled most of where Genghis lived and their demise left ruins that still exist, um, setting the stage for the Karyat and the Jurchen Jin. So the Khitan Lao were there first. They were overthrown by the Jurchen Jin and the Karyat, who kind of came up alongside. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jurchen capital was present-day Beijing, mm-hmm. then called Zhongdu. Okay. Uh, their Khan was called the Golden Khan, or Alton Khan. They ruled of a, of a population of more than 48 million people. Um, the majority were Han or ethnic Chinese, but remember, the Jurchenjin themselves were not. 
Uh, Genghis was at one point enrolled uh, and actually kind of worked for them until about 1210 among the tributaries to the Golden Khan. Every year, he would go to Inner Mongolia Frontier Post, bow towards the capital, and present tribute to the Jurchen Jin. Nearly all the leaders from the Karyat, Mongols, and Tatars had a history of having to do this, mm. pay tribute to the Jin, because the Jin were so dang powerful, right? So all of them have to head to the border, give them all the stuff, show that they're not messing around, and then leave. Genghis himself had to do this for a long time. Um, the way that the Jin managed this frontier was by granting titles and rights um, to pay tribute to many petty rulers along the frontier. But if that ruler got a little too powerful, they would run a punitive expedition and squash him. Right? Okay. Uh, or like encourage his rivals to squash him. Right. Eventually, they got tired of doing this because it was exhausting, having to go out and squash these little tribal leaders. So instead, they just built a wall so they okay. wouldn't have to work so hard at managing the frontier. Genghis was an underling on this wall and worked mm. for the guy that managed the whole thing. He ran ongoing missions and uh, served, yeah, the guy who ran it called Toril, and eventually Genghis overthrew him, but it took a long time before he stopped paying tribute to the Jurchen Jin. So Jurchen Jin, powerhouse. Mm. Like, they are, they are massive. They have loads of cash. So that's one big thing outside of Mongolia. Gotcha. Inside Mongolia, you got the Karyat, you got the Naiman, you got those little tribes. But outside, you have the Jurchen Jin, and that's, they're like huge monstrous throwing their weight around. Mm. Uh, you also have the Tangut. That's the western border of the Jurchen Jin Empire, what is now Gansu. Um, these were folks originally from the Tibetan Plateau, but didn't really speak Tibetan. The Tangut's had close relations with the Karyat, um, and the Karyat, any Karyat in trouble could flee to the Tangut and fi find welcome. Eventually, this is kind of what happened. Uh, Ankh Khan and his son, son Ilkwa Sengum, were overthrown by Genghis, and they fled to the Tangut Kingdom. And that was a bummer, because that made the Tangut Kingdom a target for the Mongols, uh, which eventually took them over. They were patrons of Buddhism, um, and their leaders were even called the Buddha Khan. So, mm. Church and Jin, we got the Tangut, who were friendly to the Karyat, eventually got overthrown. And then you also have the Forest Folk, kind of on the edge of the forest. Awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. It's pretty cool. So, man, that's what I want to be. Forest folk? Well, just like, yeah. There's always just like cool people in history that, are cool, that get cool names like that, like the forest folk. Yeah. Or like, I don't know, the cave boys. Or something. <laughs> the cave boys. <laughs> that sounds like a young adult novel. You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Like, yeah. uh, what is it? The Sugar Creek Gang yeah. is what I used to read. <laughs> the boxcar children. Boxcar children. The cave boys. <laughs> um, the, 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 what is it? The, the forest people? Forest. The forest folk. Oh, the forest folk. That's, That's even cooler. Name. So north of Mongolia were these vast taiga forests of Siberia that stretched to the to all the way to the tundra along the Arctic Ocean. Um, to the historian that wrote the secret history, these were not hospitable lands. Mm. Like, if it ever mentions them, they are cutting your way through with the machete. Like, it's all danger. You're barely surviving. So they, they yielded good resources. You get a lot of game there, but they weren't really a place that you wanted to go and try to conquer or travel through. Mm. They were kind of dangerous. The forest folk were conquered early in the empire's expansion, but the Mongols always sort of found the country alien and frightening and wanted to stay away from it. And this is in present day where? Uh, north of Mongolia? It says for the taiga forests of Siberia. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Okay. So to review, outside of Mongolia, we got the Jurchen Jin. Mm -hmm. the the, Tangut, they're the throwing the weight around. Throwing the weight around, lots of gold. The Tangut, who like the Karyat and eventually, you know, harbor the wrong guy. Okay. And then you got the forest folk mm, who don't get conquered, them. but you, the forest is always scary. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the Karakitai. 
Um, when the Jurchen over overthrew the Lao, not all the Lao submitted. One prince from the imperial line named Daisy, okay. Daisy Lemya, too bad. meaning Daisy the scribe, he fled to Mongolia with a large band of the Lao. He proclaimed himself universal sovereign and tried wow. to rally a bunch of folks to sort of make it happen. It did not happen. Yeah. Uh, instead, he moved to Central Asia where he defeated the rulers of the local Turkic Muslim dynasty and actually did set up oh, no. a huge empire. Let's go. Um, and as a result, he created an empire that eventually ruled directly or indirectly the whole of Central Asia from Samarkand and Bukhara to the w in the west to the Uyghur kingdom in the east. So he, he wasn't messing around. Like this guy did not suck at creating empires. He kind of yeah. did the thing. Same Uyghurs as the present day Uyghurs? I imagine. Like the later Mongol Empire, they had capital-walled cities paired with seasonal movements of armies that herded and hunted. The empire broke up when refugees from Genghis's conquest arrived on the scene. So it was sort of an accidental conquering of these guys. Genghis was thrown his weight around. Uh, one guy married the, like, that was running away from Genghis, married the daughter of the then ruler, and then usurped his throne, and then ruled till he was killed by a Mongol commander in 1218. So everything kind of went downhill just because just because Genghis was getting so big. It was right. almost like an accidental overthrow of this mm. whole empire. Um, so when we're talking kind of religious belief systems, we've got Islam kind of in the southern western part of this yep. and Buddhism in the eastern part of this. Mm -hmm. And whatever, did the, did the Mongolians proper have like their own sort of um, pagan style faith from before, or were they? I'll, I'm hitting religion a little right, bit. Let's do it. Like we'll talk, right. we'll talk religion and ritual and all that all right, stuff. Rock and roll. So you also have the Sarts and the really difficult to pronounce if you see the word Khwarazmian Sultan. It is eleven letters: K H W A R A Z M I N. Khwarazmian. Oh, it sounds like your engine's starting. It's trying to start on a cold day. I know. So this was past that Kirakitai Empire that was founded by the guy. You know, like declaring himself universal sultan and actually kind of doing it. This is beyond that. Um, and they, they were kind of, uh, grew up a few years earlier than that of Genghis Khan's. And as the Karakitai fell apart, you know, because of Genghis Khan's expanding empire and that whole like assassination thing, um, the Khwarazmian empire acquired that border with the Mongols. So they sort of like butted up against Genghis's empire when the Karakitai sort of went kaput. Mm -hmm. um, the Sarts who ruled this empire were car caravaneers. They also did caravans, leading caravans from Khwarazmia into Mongol during the time of Genghis Khan. When they finally did get a border, Genghis being smart, he opened trade relations. Those did not go well mm -hmm. because the Sultan of the time killed the merchants, stole their goods, and then killed the envoys who were sent to demand justice. Oh, no. This led to Genghis's expedition to crush the Sultan who was named Allah Udin, which sounds a lot like Aladdin, um, Muhammad. Sultan Muhammad died on an island in the Caspian Sea. I am sure fleeing from Genghis. Uh, and the expedition was repurposed to a different attack. So he's like, great, you killed the Sultan, go do something else. <laughs> so these guys did not last right. un also under Genghis's expansion. Okay, you have uh, in the far margins, you've got the Song Chinese. Um, you have the Caliph and the far on the far western steppe. About mm -hmm. the time the secret history was conceived, the kingdom of Hungary was in the far west. The Caliph of Baghdad in the southwest and the Song Dynasty in South China were all still kind of in opposition to Mongol power. According to the secret history, they were all sort of presented as if they'd already been subdued or had never been hostile in the first place, probably because they were hoping that that would be the way that it went. Mm. But that's like way on the margins of the empire, so not necessarily close or much part of the secret history. I mean, that's insane. From like Hungary to 
uh, what was the, the the caliphate in you know in the Baghdad. South, in Baghdad to the Song, Song dynasty China. all yeah. the way to almost the coast, and then as far north as they're like willing to go based on the geography. That's right. that's yeah. insane. Yeah, yeah. it um, was massive, crazy. Okay, so let's talk religion. Let's do the it. Thing you just asked about. Mm-hmm. So it's from what we gather. There's a lot of talk about heaven. Like the one theme is this is the ruling dynasty from heaven and uh, heaven does interfere with things, but the motives are often sort of lost. So I'm going to read you a quote. Um, they, they, in their everyday speech, they always say, relying on the strength of immortal heaven and the fortunate protection of the emperor and all affairs that they desire to undertake. They say, heaven wants it like that. Regarding anything that people have already done, they say, heaven is aware. There is no affair that is not attributed to heaven from the Lord of the Tatars to his common people it is thus. So it's always just heaven is doing stuff. Um, in The Secret History, this begins with the guy Grey Wolf. He is born with a destiny from heaven above. He is the great ancestor of Genghis Khan. Um, the key power of heaven is to give success or failure. They do believe in one God. They believe it is he who is the giver of good things as well as hardships. They worship him every day with incense burned in censers, asking only to be sound of mind and strong of health. On special occasions, the Khans would take off their hats hang their belts around their necks and beseech heaven to grant victory, right? Or in times of military crisis, like if they're losing, hats off, belt on, please heaven do your stuff. Mm. Uh, but it wasn't just heaven. The earth is sort of the, gov- the second governing element of the world. Heaven's favor is kind of mediated by holy land. The holy place in the secret history is, is the uh, Bergen Khaldun man- Mountains, which are the modern great and small Kenti Mountains. The headwaters of the three rivers, the Onan, Curlin, and Tool, flowing from the mountains were forbidden to non-Mongols. You couldn't even go up there. Mm. Um, the sacred land was sort of a material conduit for receiving from and giving blessing to immaterial heaven. They would sacrifice meat by putting it on a big pole and kind of hanging it in the sky mm-hmm. or by burning it in a hole in the ground. And I can describe that, like how they did that. So every year... In moon nine, and after the 16th of, 16th of moon 12, I imagine they're months, the court of burnt food, one horse, or in the court of burnt food, one horse, three sheep, mare's milk, ale, and three bolts each of red, red silk, gold weave, and silk tabby lining are used. And one Mongolian darken, together with one Mongolian shaman, is ordered to dig a pit in the ground to roast the meat, continuing to burn it with the ale, mare's milk, and the rest. The shaman in the dynastic language calls aloud the imperial names of the reigns in sequence and performs sacrifice. So you just burn a bunch of stuff. It's a shame. Um, uh, well, the great the great thing is leftovers were consumed by those present. Oh, right, well, barbecue, <laughs> Never mind. Yeah. If you were excluded from eating it, it meant that you were excluded from the lineage of heaven and oh. essentially excommunicated. Oh, so if wolf. they're like, none for you, you are like you take That's off. Bad. You gotta get out of there. Yeah. That's bad for you. Um, there were also some household cults. Some of the traditions, like sprinkling, like before you drink, you sprinkle some on the images, like in your yurt, mm-hmm. and then kind of go outside and sprinkle to the four directions. They're still used. Um, there were also other idols that they would sort of carry around for corporate worship, like big social worship. And it was all conducted by shamans who were priests, diviners, and healers. Uh, they presided over ancestral sacrifices for social groups. The chief shaman camped in the f- in front of the yurt of the group's secular head. So that would have been like, the front right, hmm. like he's, he's camped right in front. Uh, and he, he would indicate when and where they should move next. So that, that was his job. Like, okay, it's time to move the camp. We're going so this the, direction. The shaman would do it. 
Yeah, the he shaman would, would so kind was, of divine which time okay. it was good to leave. Mm. You're thinking that's a lot of power? I'm just saying like? that's a lot of power. Like, uh, what if, you know, and is he making it, like, practical decisions? Like, the, the hunting is going to be good over here? Or is he making some sort of, like, mystical decisions? Like, I opened up a bird, and I read its liver, and it said, you got to go north in the winter. And everyone's like, oh, crap. Sounds like yeah. it's the mystical one. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's my next question. Okay. If you were a shaman. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Uh, how are you telling the future? Oh, man. I got all sorts of ways. What? Oh, man. I'm okay. Th- what? I'm looking into a pool of water. Okay. I am shooting a bird. I'm opening it up, and I'm looking at its little spots. Uh-huh. Wait, uh, you said you shoot in the water? No, I'm shooting a bird, opening okay, it up. Looking, I'm, I'm staring deep into a basin of water. That's the first okay, one. Okay, basin of water. That's the first one. second one is. Maybe like in the dark with like a fire. Back to the first one. Or I'm looking one. to see if there's like a reflection. On to the second one. Okay. Uh, I'm going to shoot a bird out okay. of the air. I'm going to open up that bird. Okay. I'm going to look at the spots on the inside of that of bird. Of course, naturally. I'm going to take a nap underneath a tree okay. and the gods are going to speak to me through the leaves whistling. Wow. I am going to take a thing, uh-huh. d- uh, dig a hole. Put that thing in the hole, uh-huh. come back in a month, dig out that thing and see what happened to it. Okay. Oh man, what else am I going to do? Um, I am going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to straight up ask a dog. Okay. Um, yeah, those pretend, are my, I got, pretend yeah. you can ask understand. a dog. How yeah. do you, uh, how would you divine the answer? Wait, um, he'll understand based the on dog. How, he'll understand the question yeah. based on what he does, how what he do moves. Um, I mean, how am I going to understand the answer with bird, bird liver? Yeah, seriously. Okay. So you have to. You got to tell me the names of these things. So there's always like, what, a, what do they call that? An augurer, someone oh, who sure. who fiddles with the intestines. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, oh yeah. So that's. So, I mean, dogomancy. D- dog, <laughs> dogomancy yeah, for it. sure. Yeah. Um, uh, um, uh, treecolepsy. Tree. What's is that? The water one? Not sleeping underneath the tree. Okay. Treecolepsy. Treecolepsy is great. Um, and isn't the water one that's scrying? Isn't it scrying? Yeah. Oh, that has a name. Yeah, that has a name. Yeah, that's not fun. I would also love to just like find a really cool gemstone, just like really pretty one, and oh. just like hold it up in front of my eye and just like look to see what I see in the world through the gemstone. I don't have a name for it. Kaleidoscopy. Yeah, I'll call. Uh-huh. Oh, awesome. Let's do one. it. Those are my ways. What about you, maybe? How are you going to divine You, you took all mine. I oh. mean, I was going to give. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's like the exact same list. It was the weirdest thing. Uh, I don't know. Like look up at the clouds and uh, interpret stuff from that. Okay. Uh, yeah. Look up, see what shapes you see. That's going to tell isn't, me which way to go. Isn't the cloud one? Like, I think there's a name for that, isn't there? Sure. Cloudomancy. I don't know. Cumulomancy. Uh, what know. is uh, Galadriel doing in Lord of the Rings? Isn't she looking in a pool of water? Yeah. Yeah, I think she's scrying. I think that's scrying. What else is there? There's Scrying um, can also be the crystal ball. That's like anything, anything reflective. Yeah. Uh, uh, big data. Is that the other one? No. Well, what, the, yeah, big data. <laughs> Palantir, man. That was a good buy on my part. I'm yeah. glad I... Uh, Are they doing all right? Oh, yeah. They I went, thought they kind of folded. They did, but they went up to about 17 bucks from like six bucks. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, cool. I'm happy with that. Are they done now? Or are they? No, no. They're they're getting government contracts and stuff. Oh, sweet. Yeah. The fact that they called themselves Palantir is just freaking me out. Anyway, we're we're we're. You meant the the Lord of the Rings Palantir? I meant like, the Lord of the Rings Palantir. The Seeing Stones. Yeah, is that yeah, what you're yeah. yeah. Okay. So you're gonna do cloud cloud stuff? Is yeah, there a name that, for it? I'm sure there oh, is. Oh, I haven't been able to find it yet. I was just looking up the Palantir. What about one. just staring into a fire? Hmm. That's I, a good I like one that too. one. That's you can't do that one because that's what everybody does. I know, but it's because. It works. Same with the other ones. Yeah, yeah. it's like crowdsourcing. If everyone does it, it must work. Aeromancy. Aeromancy. Oh, yep. Okay. Wind currents and cosmological <laughs> events like comets to divine the past, present, or future. That's the answer I got. The oh, act- oh, oh, no, I got one. Yeah. Um, take some, yeah, involves drinking some tea. Okay. Yeah. And just tea leaves? Tea leaves. Yeah. Right mm-hmm. at the bottom when they lie one. there, you can see it and see what happens and I can kind of tell the future. That's a cozy one. That's a very cozy That's one. That's pretty cozy. Yeah. Oh, uh, how do they do it? So, <laughs> scapulomancy. Oh, woof. Which is the practice of divination using scapulae or shoulder blades. 
What? They would burn sheep shoulder blades and divine the oh. future from the cracks. Huh. Oh, interesting. Which is kind of cool. That is cool. And a little bit metal. Well, yeah. that, that's kind of hardcore. Yeah, they also made a- astrological observations and predictions. Oh, of course, there of course, is. the yeah, stars, obviously. the spheres. What have I? What am I? Come on. Yep. What kind they, of medievalist am I? They Rookie. were also healers, and they would often, from what I gather, their system of healing was figure out the right thing to sacrifice. So hmm. one time when a con was sick, they started they just sacrificing everything, and nothing was working. They're finally like, "Your brother, maybe?" And that's the funny oh. thing. They sacrificed the brother. Really? I think so. Oh my gosh, that's the fun thing that finally did it. And they're like, "Hey, we did it. We're good at." sacrifice. Okay, <laughs> and, fair enough. Um, and they also did some other stuff. And I'm going to read you this quote. This one's pretty fun. This is, this is a long section, but it's pretty interesting. So another peculiar practice in which forest peoples and Turkic peoples from the Western steppe excelled was the use of weather stones called yay or jay or jada. Such weather magic to bring rain or snow is still practiced today in various styles among Turkic and Mongolian peoples with a variety of stones or stone like stone-like items, including ancient Paleolithic stone blades, gallstones or bezoars of livestock, or naturally smooth and triangular or egg-shaped meteoric stones with reddish-brown, reddish-yellow, or black color. Dipped in water, they may be shaken or rubbed in combination with various songs or formulae to bring about the desired precipitation. Hmm. So you get an egg rock, and then you dip it, and you rub it, and you sing a song. And that's that's the way they do it. That's a good one. Um, Militarily, Jada Stones could bring snowfall that could freeze unprepared armies. Oh, man, you got to have at least a couple of those. Yeah. 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 Such a snowfall played a big role in the final Mongol victory over the Golden Khan's army at Sangfeng Mountain in February 1232. But such techniques were still subject to heaven's will. Yeah. When the Naiman and the Oriat rulers tried to use them against Genghis Khan, mm. the snowstorm fell on themselves <laughs> instead, and they realized that heaven is not pleased with us. <laughs> Uh, the most characteristic form you gotta of sh- read the manual gotta yeah. read the manual yeah. the most characteristic form of shamanism described by ethnographers since the 18th century involves a trance and spirit possession mm. uh, or in a different conceptualization the shaman's journey to the spirit world William of Robrook gives the only known description of such practices from the empire period itself as seen by a Christian who saw possession as the work of demons so to quote some of the shamans also conjure, conjure up demons and they gather in their dwelling at night those who want an answer from the demon, putting cooked meat in the center of the dwelling. Hmm. The uh, shaman who issues the summons begins uttering his incantations and holds a tambourine with which he bangs heavily on the ground. At length, he falls into a frenzy and has himself tied up. And then the demon appears in the darkness and gives the shaman meat to eat, and he utters oracles. One Hungarian prisoner of war joined them in the shamanic session, but the demon made his appearance on top of the yurt and cried out that he could not enter, since there was a Christian with them. The Persian historian Juvaini agrees that spirits enter through the smoke hole of the yurt. He also claimed that such spirit possessions was facilitated by... uh, I'm going to skip that part. Another very hostile Persian historian, Juzjani, claimed that the Genghis Khan could tell the future by means of spirit possession in addition to scapulomancy. According to Juzjani, the Khan had special clothes, which when worn would induce a shamanic trance in which he would accurately predict the future and have his words taken down by a bystander to be read and followed later when he recovered his senses. If any of this is true, then the secret historian kept that secret as well. So we like, there's nothing about that in the actual secret history of the Mongols, but... I don't know. You got to stay away from that stuff. That sounds pretty... That sounds nasty. But like... Demons? Trance clothes? No thanks. What was the redacted part? Uh, It was was redacted. It's just a little inappropriate for like... All right, well, in Get between to. that one. Okay, yeah, that's an in-between thing. Don't worry, you're not, if you, you know, you're not missing much. I wasn't redacting anything mm. super interesting. Um, I, yeah, I can see how a bunch of Italians coming to uh, Mongolia would be a little, a little weirded out. Yep. 
Yeah, it was, uh, it's like a whole thing. I like the weather rocks. Those seem cool. That is. Yeah, those are kind of fun. Okay. And that mare's milk sounds like a hoot and a holler. The fact that you call it Bailey's makes me, I'm just thinking that they've just got like sacks of Bailey's <laughs> hanging what, up on that's there. That's pretty much what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't imagine that they didn't spice it a little bit, oh, right? Man. It's probably delicious. They don't have hazelnuts, but they got to have something. Something. That yeah. with uh, mm. with a little boiled mutton? Mm. Like, mm. come on, man. They're living the life. It's cozy. <laughs> it's cozy. And then you got a little, your little party year. Little you year. sit on a couch with the dudes on your right and the women on your left. And it's like an eighth grade dance. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I didn't have Bailey's at my eighth grade dance, but. Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's the world. Uh, I know there was a whole lot of names of empires in there and a whole lot of geography. But if you can keep it all in your head, basic lesson is Genghis Khan grew up with a bunch of warring clans around him and then a bunch of empires kind of beyond that. Yeah. And in that mix, he became one of the most powerful men to have ever lived. So this is all the intro to the book that tells us about Genghis Khan's life. Yeah, and I wanted to do this because when I first started reading, it was it's just the weirdest stories. Uh, the first couple of tales are about how I think it's Grey Wolf gets his wife and he has a brother that can see like three miles and he sees a girl far off and he's like, get her for me. So the kidnapper and then he has some kids and then What's weird about that. She has <laughs> another kid by a guy that is a yellow dog that comes in through the roof and then disappears through the roof. That's a little, That's a little yeah. And then one of the kids is weird and goes off and lives by himself and like just kills chickens all day. And then the brothers go and find him. And they're like, hey, man, you're being pretty weird. And he's like, that's fair. Well, it's better than fighting a chimpanzee with a sword. With a sword. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, fair. Seriously. You don't also want from that. the AMA. Yeah, yeah that's from an AMA. Yeah. Oh, like, sorry. Sorry. Knows no one knows what we're talking about. All right, well, we got to fill We got to fill them in now. No, no, we don't. We don't. If you're curious, you can be a Patreon. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, Pay 10 bucks a month. You can find out what that's about. Yep. Okay. Well, if you want to hear about chickens and chimpanzees with swords, you can subscribe to our AMA. That's that's the thing you can do. Sorry, I don't mean to take over your your duties, but that's that's it for me today. I'll have more secret history of the Mongols and the stories that they're like, this is like actual real history and scholarship. Awesome. The story, <laughs> the, the first few stories in the secret history of the Mongols. Could have fooled me. Woo, real kooky. <laughs> the yellow get, dog through the roof. Yeah. yeah. They get, they get super bizarre. So I wanted to give you a little bit of actual Genghis Khan awesome. and his, his uh, stuff before we jump into the cool. crazy. Awesome. Well, any classical stuff we got wrong, Never. this episode notwithstanding. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. No, Come on, no. man. You haven't even looked up anything. <laughs> Uh, have we ever made mistakes? I no, we never no. made a mistake. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know with Graham, Thomas, and AJ. Uh, you can, uh, if you want to be a Patreon subscriber, we're on Patreon under Classical Stuff. If you want to tweet at us, we're on CSLL something what? stuff. What? CLSSCAL stuff. Is. You got there. Um, is it even called a tweet anymore? Is it like an X? Is it X? called an X? Or what's it called? Up. Um, <laughs> Do people say that? I don't know what they say. Okay. If you want to email us, you can email us at theguysatclassicalstuff.net. We have a website called classicalstuff.net where we post episodes, but who goes to websites to find podcast episodes? Um, we, um, it's about it, eh? I mean, y'all. Eh? Oh, yeah. we found, wait, hold on, wait. He's Canadian. Uh, wait. I mean, what? Uh, so, anyway, uh, we'll catch you next week. Yeah. Bye. 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 Bye.